So we're going to dig into uh, chapter 2 and focus in a little bit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to do my best to try to illuminate some problems for you and then leave you there. That's what we're going to attempt to do today. So at the end, like we did last time, we'll, t- we'll have some time for some questions. And any question is valid. We appreciate so much the feedback, the thoughts, the inquiry, uh, some of the pushback. Uh, traditional uh, religiosity, I suppose, uh, has all of the answers. But we recognize in our journey with Spark, we actually have a ton of questions. And the questions push us further and deeper into understanding this world, understanding God's word, and understanding who we are in the midst of it. And we don't ever want to stop asking questions because it pushes us to become better and to know more. So that's what we're going to do at the very end. So really quickly, if you haven't been here uh, over the last couple weeks, we just want to catch you up a little bit, and then we'll get to Genesis chapter 2. We started the series in chapter 1 and talking about how Genesis is an incredible story. Now, if you contrast the story of Genesis to other ancient Mesopotamian stories, creation stories, the Genesis story is a phenomenal story. It's a story about a God who's loving, thoughtful, takes chaos and turns it into order and meaning and purpose. Whereas other stories are all about uh, sex and violence and power and struggle with the gods. And so we talked about what story are you living in? By what story do you qualify and live out your life? And we wanted to share this time with Genesis because we think the story of Genesis is a phenomenal story to live out of. A, a good story. The story begins in Genesis chapter 1 with very, very good. Then uh, the second week we talked about let there be. The, the story of God's creation comes through by speaking and by words. And as partners with God in that creation, the things that we say, the words that come out of our mouths are very, very important because we recognize that words create Worlds, And so when you speak into somebody else's life, you're actually creating something in them. So we should be very, very cautious and very, very thoughtful and very mindful to speak words that are going to continue on the goodness of God. In uh, the next sermon that we shared, we talked about how the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaos and the waters representing the chaos and the dysfunction. But God was hovering over that. The Spirit was hovering over that, incubating new life. And it's very reminiscent of the things that we have. We have chaos in our lives, and the Spirit of God is hovering over us to incubate new life there. Uh, The following week, Danielle uh, gave a message on let's get our hands dirty and about how you and I are partnering with God in the planting and the caring for, in the guarding and in the serving of the garden. And we have this beautiful ceremony right out here. And there it is. If you take a look out the window is our little olive tree still alive. Thank the Lord. Still thriving. Hasn't hasn't died. Um, And just an encouragement and an exhortation to all of us that every single one of us who are are a part of Spark are getting our hands dirty and making making that which God has planted here come alive. And we are so, we're at the very end, actually, we're going to share some things that are going on. And we're just so deeply grateful for all of you for participating and getting your hands dirty in in this. We talked next week about how you and I are created in God's image. And that means everybody on this planet is created in God's image. Even the people that you don't like and the people that don't like you. They are all created in God's image, and it helps us to understand that the image of me wants to meet the image of you. And if we do that, if that's our premise of how we relate to one another, then there can be some beautiful redemptive steps and lessons from that. After that, we talked about the Sabbath day, the very seventh day. Stop creating. Stop moving forward in this world, finding your identity in the things that you do, 
and rest in the very presence of who God is and who he has made you, since that is the lesson that God has given through his activity of stopping himself. Uh, The week after that, our Spark intern, he gave a message on keeping and bearing on the story of Cain and Abel about how we are all keepers of our brothers and our sisters. And the reason why we are keepers of them, because we are bearing God's image in that keeping. And then last week, Danielle and I shared a message on Ezra Konegdo, which I hope was at least an intrigue into thinking about how male and female relate together. The reason why I went through all of that summary is because we're now going to start moving into different portions of the Genesis narrative. And It's important to understand, as we've talked about before, that oftentimes the things that we bring to the Bible help shape how we see it. Now, you and I, um, because we've inherited Gutenberg's printing press, we are very linear people. And that goes back to the technology seminar that we gave a little while ago. If you missed that, that's online. But we think in very sequential patterns. Uh, This comes after this. Chapter 2 comes after chapter... Okay, some of you are on board with that. Very nice. (laughs) Chapter 3 comes after chapter 2. Chapter 4 comes after chapter 3. Are are we okay? Tony, did you give him enough coffee? Okay. Uh, So we think very sequentially. Now, most traditional Christian interpretations or or thoughtful interpretations regarding Genesis will will read Genesis in very linear patterns. So chapter 3, or the fall, as we call it, comes after everything's beautiful and everything's wonderful. And now we live as a result post Genesis chapter three. The reason why we teach what we teach here is because we'd like to challenge that a little bit and ask you to think, what if instead of linearity, sequence one right after another, these chapters are actually layered one on top of each other? And what the entire narrative and thrust of Genesis is doing is trying to describe to you the multiple facets of what this reality, this beautiful creation, this universe is. And if we thought of it in layers, that, under, that it begins with something that's very good, it, but there's also, there's also deception, there's also shame, there's also all these other things. That might change the way we think about some of the traditional theologies that we've held or the traditional narratives and stories that have been passed down to us. That underneath everything, even though we might see that we are all, as we'll get to, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, underneath us all is Genesis chapter 1. That we are all very good. That God has created that. But we are multiple, complex creatures that have good, but then have other things layered on top. And if this analogy doesn't work for you, maybe this analogy might work better for you. So think, think, think in whatever way you want to think. So when we get to Genesis chapter 2, I'm hoping to illuminate some of that. Here we go. Now we're in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 5. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We will conclude our reading there. I want to point out just a couple elements, and then we'll move right on through to that tree. First is this. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 4, you have a compound name, which only shows up twice in the entire Bible. This is the divine name of God, which we call Yahweh, or yod Hey vav Hey or Y-H-W-H, depending upon how you would like to say that, connected with the creator God, Elohim, which is the name of God in Genesis chapter 1. This compound name doesn't show up again in the Bible until Exodus chapter 9, and those are the only two places that it comes. Now, if you take the idea that the divine name of God is his personhood, is the relationship piece, partnered together with the omniscience, the power, omnipotence kind of God, of, of the creator God of Genesis chapter 1, what we have here in Genesis chapter 2 is almost a melding of those two coming together in this narrative. Now, I'm sure there's a lot, again, like I said, I'm hoping to pose problems for you, and then we can have some discussions later. This is one of them. What's going on here in verse 4 and in Genesis chapter 2, where the two primary identifiers of God, this creator, amazing, personal God, comes together in the fashioning of man, breathing in new breath of life, and the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that happens in Genesis chapter 4. Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4. Now, in verse 6, we see that there was um, no shrub had appeared, um, so God made waters come up. It's not necessarily water. It may be steam or maybe mist, and it's always fresh water that's coming up out of the earth. Now, the reason I want to point this out is because, again, when we think scientifically and linearly about these verses, sometimes I've heard, see, this was the time when water began to come upon the earth, and we can equate that to the geological times and and all those different types of things. Now, that's perhaps true. But what is also perhaps true, again, if we think on layers, is that what comes after it, immediately after it, is is verse 7, where God forms you and I out of not the ground, although we are ground creatures, but out of the dust of the ground. And other places in the Bible, that word dust is actually translated clay. And so when you think about verse 6 being the waters that are coming up, it may not necessarily be a description of geology, but a beautiful description of craftsmanship. Because in order for dust to turn to clay, what do you need? You need the water. So the water comes up on the earth. And if you notice, the potter has to constantly dip his hand into water in order to create. See, the entire narrative shifts when you start to think, well, maybe there's something layered going on here. And that focus begins to come in to the creation of you and I. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Why the water and the dust of the ground go together, which is really perhaps the clay of the ground. Now, in verse 8, we have this amazing passage that all of us know about the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden is a word that means delight, pleasure, but it also means luxury. There's a phraseology there that the garden was planted in the east. Now, again, if we think in geology or location, we might think, where is the garden? But ancient people, if we're thinking in a different way, 
in the east may actually be a temporal description, not a spatial one. Not where is the garden, when was the garden. Way back at some particular time, or maybe underneath it all. There's, there's some beautiful mystery going on there. Um, the word Eden, of course, meaning delight or pleasure or luxury. And that's, I think, explanatory a little bit of why you and I, even to this day, and people all around the world are constantly looking for luxury. In fact, when you see somebody who's constantly looking for luxury, what are they really looking for? <laughs> They're reaching or digging for something that's deep and primordial into who we are. And Genesis is describing this really really beautiful. And, and these are just a few of the things. Can you see how intricate and layered and complex this narrative is? It, and it goes on. There's some beautiful stuff here. Now, we've, getting, we've gotten to Genesis chapter 2, verses 9. And the traditional translation of that passage is the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to try to use the phrase, the knowledge of good and bad. And the reason for that is because evil has a connotation in my mind that I'd like to avoid. I apologize ahead of time if I slip up. I've been saying the knowledge of good and evil for so long, you know, it's kind of stuck in my, my memory. But we're going to try to use the phrase good and bad, and there's a reason for that. Number one... Many complicated things happen when we get to this passage. People, and myself included, students who I work with, and I'm sure you have maybe asked this question, why in the world would God create essentially a divine setup? Like you have the tree of life there, and you could either eat from the tree once or continually eat from it and live, and everything would be beautiful. It'd be, it would be eaten. It would be luxury. It would be everything the way God designed it to be. And humans would re, you know, treat one another the way they're supposed to be. It would be beautiful. But God put this stinking tree in the middle of the garden of good and evil, and as soon as we ate from it, what happened? All creation went kaput, or however you want to put that. But again... But again, we may be thinking linearly, sequentially about this. What if the tree of the knowledge of good and bad is describing another layer of this creation? What if this tree here isn't set as a time marker that before everything was perfect, after everything was not so perfect? What if instead of that, it's describing something amazing and beautiful about reality, about how you and I experience. And the first thing that it, most people believe it describes is this entire concept and idea of free will. And the fact that you and I are created as autonomous beings in the image of God, the ability to make decisions, the ability to make choices on our own. And I think it's a pretty good argument to say that Genesis 2 and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is Genesis's argument against determinism, against the idea that life just goes on, that molecules do their thing. You and I, because of our conscious will, because of our relationship with God, because we are created in God's image, actually have the opportunity, the choice, the power, the ability to do things on our own. We have free will. And all of that, the reason why we have free will, is predicated on the idea of love. That in order for God to be love in this world, he must give you the opportunity to choose to love. Uh, in fact, there's, a, there's so many clips I wanted to show. One of them is from the Snoodle Tales. 
If you haven't seen a Snoodle's Tale by uh, Big Idea um, in Veggie Tales, we'll, you know, we'll send you a link or something like that. But there's a, there's a line in there that says, a love that's demanded is no love at all. And if you're a big fan of Jim Carrey, it's also illustrated in this beautiful clip. Uh, how do you feel now? Have you completely lost your mind? What, are you drunk? Yeah, I'm drunk. Drunk with power. In this film, Bruce gets to be God for an entire week, and he exercises his powers throughout his day and throughout his week. But this one thing he cannot do, there's things that God cannot do. This one thing he cannot do is make you love him. And love that's demanded is no love at all. So maybe one of the layers of this cake, the reason why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there, it's describing and putting forth the idea that you have the choice and the opportunity to love, and you have the choice and the opportunity not to love. And it's all your prerogative. It's your free will to do so. Number two, the idea of good and bad. This is the other concept and the other idea that may be coming out of this tree. Now, again, there's lots of different ways to think about these words. Good and evil is how it's normally translated. But there's a couple of things that might help us understand what this phraseology might mean. The first is the idea of knowledge. Notice it's, that they, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you've been around church for a little while, you might have heard that the word know, K-N-O-W in the Bible, doesn't necessarily always mean intellectual knowledge. It means relational knowledge. It means experiential knowledge. And in many ways, it's very sexual and intimate and erotic. Uh, Adam knew his wife, and then they bore a son. And so knowledge here, knowing good and bad, isn't about coming to some sort of intellectual Assent about good things and bad things, it might actually mean something much deeper. Experiencing, feeling, existentially having, a, having an, an experience with. The second idea is a word called merism. Everybody say merism. merism. Now, merism is a technical word that just simply means a compilation putting together of two words to mean one big idea or, or thing. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And a lot of scholars would tell you that heavens and earth isn't a description of heavens and then earth, but is a, is a word, a merism to mean everything. In the beginning, God created everything. It's a literary device. So good and bad follows that same kind of pattern. We began to know, or by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we are now knowing everything, all moral things, all ethical things, we are starting to become intimate with all of that. It may be a compound word to mean a much bigger thing. 
And then the last thing that helps us to understand what is this good and bad, Deuteronomy 139 is the only other place that this phraseology good and bad show up, and it is to describe the children who are going to enter into the land, that, and the reason why they're going to enter into the land is because they don't know good and bad. It's a description of innocence. So, one possible way of reading this is, Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad because right now, as I have created you, you are completely innocent of the good and bad things that exist here on earth. Do we do this? I think we do this. We do this with our children, don't we? Haven't you ever said, no, I don't want them exposed to such and such things, because I don't want them to know what those things are. Um, We naturally protect our children from experiencing, in other words, knowing about certain things in life. They're not yet old enough. They're not old enough to make independent judgments about what is good, what is bad. So we, as the parents, Protect them from that. I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is reflected in our rating system. And the reason why we have, you know, the Motion Picture Association of America, MPAA. I think the reason why we have that is because we protect. We want to say that there is a certain age of independent judgment and responsibility. But what we want to do is we want to protect, hopefully, the innocence of people who do not yet know about these good and bad things. Um, While I was sharing this with Danielle, she reminded me of a song that illustrates this. It's about a minute and 15 seconds, and uh, it's for the children. And this is what it sounds like. Here's some good advice for all of us. Listen real carefully. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father of above, He is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father of above is looking down in love. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father of above is looking down in love. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Tony Campolo said, that song ruined my dating life. <laughs> and if you think about it, it's a little creepy. Like, be careful... 
God, God is looking down above. I mean, it's like, it can be traumatic. You got to be careful how you do these songs kind of a deal. But that's illustrative of this principle and this idea. Be careful what you do. Because there's things, we know that there's things in this world that we do not want you exposed to. We do not want you to experience. We do not want you to know. And I think this helps to explain a little bit why I work at a place called King's Academy, why some of you send your kids to a private institution. Why? Because I hear parents say this all the time. I've sent my kids here because there's things that happen in a public school that I don't want them exposed to. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are protecting them from things that we know are bad and we, got, we want to protect them. Um, I have a friend named Stephanie. This is her husband, Jared. They got married, I don't know, however many years ago. Stephanie gave this uh, testimony in my personal evangelism class. And she, this was just, I thought, one of the moments when kind of my thinking about testimonies and, and Christian walk and faith completely shifted. She got up in front of our class and she said, I don't have a testimony like some of the others that were shared. I haven't had sex. I haven't done drugs. I really haven't disobeyed my parents much. And all of us were like, well, okay. You know, she was raised in a Christian home. She was raised in a Christian family. Her parents were missionaries. She She had a wonderful testimony. And she talked about how now a lot of people would suggest, and this is what I loved so much because we were, we were grumbling a little bit, if we're honest. She gets to the middle part of her testimony. She says, now a lot of people would suggest that I have a boring testimony, that I really don't have a testimony at all. But I look at it this way. As far as I'm concerned, the way that I see it, there are a lot of things in my life that I never experienced. I never experienced the fear of contracting a sexually transmitted disease. I never experienced what the pain of having to go through rehab. I never experienced a broken heart. I never experienced the tragedy or the trauma of bad decisions. I never experienced those things because I had a loving family. I never experienced divorce. And my testimony is is not that I'm better, but that there's wonderful, amazing life as a result of obedience to God. And I sat, in that, I sat in that class and I just thought to myself, and that was one of the clicks in, in, in my thing is like, the commandments of God were there to provide an amazing life, Eden kind of a life. But so many of us eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, and we then begin to experience and we begin to know all of these things that happen. But here is a testimony of somebody that said, you know, We did our best to follow God's commands, to follow what he has set out. And I will tell you, it's been a wonderful life. Close-knit family, the absence of all that shame, the absence of pain, the absence of all those things. And again, I want to be careful not to say that this is better than other people's testimony. That's not what we're saying. It's just an illustration of this idea that as you follow what God has given you, as we live in this, you know, um, metaphorical garden, I suppose, here, there's life there. I think this is also illustrative of the idea of justice and compassion. That compassion is the idea that you jump in and you help people after they've experienced what good and bad is. But justice is what is called in in justice circles, justice is upstream. You keep people from falling into the river of pain and suffering and trafficking before they even get there so that they never have to experience what that life is like. So, What is good and bad? What is this tree? What is this layer on this cake? I'm suggesting you two ideas, free will 
that you have been given the choice, you've been given the opportunity. You and I are not determined. You have the ability and power to choose. And two, it's an expression of our innocence that before Adam and Eve ate from that tree, they didn't know all of these bad things that they experienced. And that was exactly what God intended. And as we continue to eat from the tree of life, which is throughout the rest of the scriptures, God's word, God's way, God's commandments, that's where we experience the fullness. It's a choice and it's a command of God's, God's act of love and God's act of protection. In other words, how I would sum it up is to say this. There are simply some things in this world that you and I were never created to know. There are some things that exist in this world that you and I were never created to know. We were never created to know these things. You were never created to know what injustice feels like. You were never created to know what betrayal feels like. You were never created to know that. To intimately experience that betrayal. And I'm sure if we go around this room and ask others, they know, they know good and bad. They can tell you a story. You were never created to experience deceit. You were never created to know abuse. You were never created to know regret and shame, which is what happens after they eat. They feel regret. They feel shame. You and I, underneath this layer we're created good and innocent. And you were, we were never created to know these things. You were never created to know perversion. There are just simply some things in this world that we were never created to know. That, to me, is a beautiful, brilliant illustration of this tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And Deuteronomy 30, at the very end, says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. And part of what it means to choose life, I'm going to suggest, is to actually be ignorant of things that exist in this world that you and I were never created to know. So to choose life actually is to choose ignorance, is to choose not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Last idea. What if we took this layer and instead of the layers of the cities? Underneath it all, if we began to think about this story, God created this, this world, this universe, very good. He created it on top of that with intentional craftsmanship. But he also created on top of that a sense of innocence and a sense of ignorance that you and I have all experienced. That's what Adam and Eve were. They did not yet eat from the tree of the knowledge. They did not know all of these things. And on top of that, you and I also have free will. We have the opportunity to love. And then on top of that, we've chosen to follow through and eat. And next week, I'd like to fill in those two blanks. What's on top of that? What other things do you and I have to live with in this universe, in this world? And I think that Genesis is actually describing to us a beautiful description of reality. It's giving us a worldview. 
And I hope that as you see and think about this Genesis series and as you see and think about Christian faith and walk and life and society and news and all of those things, it's so, I think it's so easy for us to focus in on those people are after, the, after Genesis chapter 3, so those people are, are evil or, or kind of a deal. But maybe we can start to see this world as layered, that underneath everything that we experience is this goodness of God, intentional craftsmanship, the, the opportunity to get back to um, the innocence and the beauty of what God designed and intended in Eden. Are you okay? Any questions? Nick? <laughs> um, okay, so presupposing the importance of God's rules here. You can eat these, but don't eat this. There's only one time where God tells Adam and Eve, do not eat this. If it's so important to maintain our innocence, why aren't there other cautions before the eating? Like, as, even as a parent, we constantly are cautioning against the bad. If this is so important to preserve our innocence, yeah. don't you think God would step forward right before Eve bites and say, remember, you might want to think, even, even keeping free will in context, you might want to really think about listening to me. Two responses come to mind. Number one, I can't answer questions, why didn't God do X? It's the same answer that I gave to you the other night. Um, we, oh, we can only try to discern what is. I mean, why didn't God just not create the tree? In the, why didn't God just do this? So, so that's my first response. I'm, not, I'm really not good. Maybe other people are, are better at answering questions. Why didn't God do what isn't listed there? But the second thing that comes to mind, it goes back to the kind of the linear sequential kind of an idea. Why didn't God step in? Well, that's presupposing that this story is describing sequential events. And I'm suggesting to you it's not describing sequential events or think about it not describing sequential events. It's just simply describing what the world is, how people are perceiving how God has set it up. So that would be my second response. I don't know if that's sufficient, but that's the two things that come to mind. But I always appreciate your questions, Nick. So what you're saying, like I kind of flinched on the slide of God never intended us to create because, again, I was I did I miss a question? What's the question? I, I think I I think I agree with your statement. Oh, oh. <laughs> Basically, you're... Which, which one do you want us to focus on? That God never intended right, right. to stay there or that later? I think I understand your question, which is basically a great message. Now what? Right? So if we... So, okay, so this exists, but what do we do in response to this? Or how do we live? Or kind of a deal. I would suggest to you that's what the rest of the scriptures are for. I, I, I think um, my immediate response is to say the rest of the scriptures delineate the, the variegated ways in which these people are trying to get back to, to the garden. Uh, Revelation 20, 21 and 22 is ultimately back at the garden, um, but they're, they're trying to figure out all sorts of different ways. And there's all sorts of different responses to different circumstances to you know, different people, and um, that's what the rest of the story is for. So, Danielle, did you want to add to that? or? 
I was just going to say, we had a friend this week uh, who's a great, good Christian friend, and he sent us an article that was in a UK paper, and it was talking about this guy who apparently had been involved in a lifestyle of internet images that we don't look at. I don't want to say the word in front of kids because I want to protect their innocence. Um, and, the, and basically has come forward and said, now that he himself is a father and he's married and he's got kids, he recognizes how horrible this is, and he's written an article basically researching saying, this viewership online is ruining our society. And Kevin and I were like, duh. <laughs> right? Like that you thought that you could intimately know and experience this over and over and over again. And it wouldn't impact you, your very soul, and all the society and your household and everything around you is shocking to us. And that's why I think I like the song, Be Careful Little Eyes What You See, right? Because, so if you talk about, like, what's now what, ask yourself in your own life, where is it that you and I may be too intimate, too much knowing, like, the actual to know something, to intimately experience it, knowledge of good and evil. We're not talking about, therefore, you shouldn't know that... You know, so many people are being trafficked and then we're not going to do something about that. We're not talking about closing your eyes or being ignorant to the issues that are in the world that need to be attended to. We're talking about that which you have partaken of where I have intimately eaten and put into my soul. Maybe that's not something I should know about anymore. And it might be music. It might be, I mean, media is easy to go to because it's something we consume and we're trying to see how it pushes out of us in different ways. But there's other things. There's a lot of other different kinds of things. So in terms of like the what next, I think if you're talking about a tree of the knowledge of good and bad, what is it that you and I are choosing to know that maybe we shouldn't know? Maybe we're intended, created to be innocent of. I think I would add to that that the inverse of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad yes. is eating from the tree of life. Yeah. It's not that's, that's the opposite of that. Yeah. It seems to me, though, that there's a... That, that same logic has been used to justify like withdrawing from society and creating, you know, like the Amish and extreme on one, but like the holiness movement or gambling's bad, don't drink any wine. I mean, all these things that are like, I I choose to have ignorance of this and, and now I've become a little enclave divorced from the rest of the world. I mean, it seems like it's very much the same mindset that leads to that. So it, is it a slippery slope or? Yeah. Next question. <laughs> Eric brings up something very, very real that I think we're very uncomfortable with at times. That as soon as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to pose a problem. The problem is we all have to make decisions about this idea. And the, I, Houston Smith wrote a book entitled The Soul of Christianity. He has a phrase in there that I've been using ever since I read it. He says, the idea of Christianity is that there's a unity that splays into a diversity, that there's a fundamental substance of who God is, that's the unity, the oneness of God. But as God begins, as, as God in our relationship with God is experienced within the full breadth of humanity, it splays into a diverse set of experiences and, and, and expressions. And I would, I, would fall, I would put this under that. 
that what this idea concept is exact, you're exactly correct. There are some things where some people say, well, I think it's okay to know certain things, uh, you know, kind of a deal, like um, R-rated movies, or I don't know, you can just go down the gamut of, of certain things. Um, and then there's others who say, no, we need to be much more sheltered. This is what's um, known as kind of a, a flexible way of engaging with the idea, maybe. Well, and the intended balance is free will, right? So the movements you're talking about actually remove a lot of free will. So if you're talking about holiness movement, if you're talking about different restrictive severe enclaves that say do this, don't do this, there's often a lot of free will removed from that. In the balance of this story, of the Genesis story, we have full free will, but there's also a reality that we're all experiencing, and there's some things we may, it may not be good for us to know. And I think if we, going back to your, your testimony story, if we spend all of our time focusing on the things that bring life and doing the things that move us closer to God, we might not be as concerned about what we know in the realm of good and bad. One more hand, and then we'll, we'll close and continue the conversation after. Sorry, it's not a question, but it's more of a comment. Perhaps one of the issues with those movements that we mentioned is that there's more of a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. if it's more free will, the reason why you're abstaining from certain things is personal, right? Like, maybe I have a weakness with cookies, so I need to not have <laughs> yeah. cookies in the house. But right. someone else might have no issue with cookies in the house. Right, right. So, So that we have a like, clear view or clear connection with God or whatever, so that God is more glorified in our lives. Right. And maybe that's where that's right. And then, you know, um, the Nancy's comment earlier, like, I think mean, maybe what the connection was made in my head is that the reason why we want to know the world as God intended it is because we're constantly trying to go back. Right? Mm-hmm. So. It's not like, oh, it's too bad. The world is imperfect. We're stuck. But the point is that how do we go from where we are, the reality, to to go back to some semblance of whatever that might be in our life. And that's where the debate begins. <laughs>